This morning in our study of Genesis, we will be looking at Genesis chapter 33. These are the words of God. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and Sarah. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan when he had come from Padan Aram, and he pinched his tent before the city. And he brought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open this word to us, this true word, Let us understand it, Lord. Let us see your glory and your truth. By it, build us up and make us strong. Fill us with the joy of your salvation, that we might be your faithful servants in our own day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Jacob first lifts his eyes and sees Esau coming, his worst fears seem to be confirmed. Because despite all the gifts that Jacob had sent forward to Esau in wave after wave, 
550 herding animals in all, a very expensive and lavish gift, Esau is still riding toward Jacob with an army of 400 men. And Jacob continues to do every little thing he can to somehow soften Esau's heart and find favor in his eyes. Jacob arranges his wives and children in stages to come before Esau, verses 1 and 2. And then Jacob walks forward before all of them and bows down seven times as Esau approaches, verse 3. But out of all the things that could have happened next, what did happen is what Jacob least expected. Esau runs to meet him and embraces him and falls on his neck and kisses him, and they weep together. Verse 4. Of all the blessings that God had bestowed upon Jacob as his time with Laban began to draw to an end, this reunion with Esau had to be the crown jewel. It had been a great blessing for God to even the score with Laban to essentially take restitution from Laban for all of the advantage he had taken of Jacob, basically treating Jacob as a servant for 14 years, then constantly changing his wages to Jacob's detriment, while also using up Rachel and Leah's dowries. God sovereignly overcame all that to build up Jacob's flocks at Laban's expense. It had also been a great blessing for God to unite Rachel and Leah, who had been locked in bitter competition with one another. But God united them in support of Jacob, following the word of the Lord to leave Laban and return to his own land of Canaan. And when Laban had chased after Jacob to do him harm, to take Rachel and Leah and the children back to Haran, God had intervened warning Laban in a dream so that Laban ended up seeking a covenant with Jacob and then departing in peace. All of those were great blessings. But to have Esau, who has been fighting with Jacob since the womb and who was bound and determined to kill him, to have Esau run to meet him and grab him in a big bear hug and fall on his neck and kiss him and begin to weep, that is more than a blessing. That is a miracle. Because this is not the same Esau we saw before on the pages of Genesis. The Esau who cared nothing for God or the things of God. The Esau who lived only for the moment and only for himself. The Esau who married two pagan women who drove his parents crazy. The Esau who wanted the material blessings of the covenant but had no interest whatsoever in the responsibilities that came with covenant headship. And so he sold his birthright, a common and accepted practice in that day. He sold it eyes open for a meal of lentil soup. Nevertheless, He painted himself as the victim and then justified in his own mind his plan to kill Jacob. That's the old Esau we knew. And that's why the New Testament uses the old Esau as the poster child, the very picture of what a shallow, carnal, profane man looks like. A warning 
of what we should be nothing like. Think about it. In Hebrews 11 and 12, of all the examples, the positive examples from the Old Testament that are given for us, that we are to emulate, there are two and only two negative examples that we are to be nothing like. Cain and Esau. But that old Esau is not the one we meet 20 years later when he comes to meet Jacob. And we see evidence of that even more as we continue in the story. Jacob asks about the groups of animals he had met. I mean, Esau asks about the group of animals. And Jacob replies that they are a gift to find favor in Esau's sight, verse 8. But then Esau replies, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself, verse 9. Again, this is not the old Esau we used to know. Jacob has to plead with Esau to receive the gift. And Esau finally agrees, verses 10 and 11. Now, many commentators say that Jacob was here basically trying to assuage his guilty conscience. He was trying to restore to Esau the blessing that Jacob had stolen from him. But I don't think the Bible supports that at all. First of all, none of the animals and the property that Jacob had with him came from Esau. Jacob left Canaan with nothing but his staff in his hand, Genesis 32, verse 10. Nor had Jacob unjustly obtained this property in these animals. God himself had given them to Jacob from Laban, as I mentioned before, basically as restitution for all of the advantage that Laban had taken of Jacob as well as his own daughters. Second, Jacob did not steal Esau's blessing. The blessing was given by God to Jacob by divine decree before the boys were even born. When God decreed the older will serve the younger, Genesis 25, 23. In other words, God was saying, Jacob, not Esau, will be the heir and head of the covenant in the line of Christ. And this is the same thing that we saw God do with the previous generation when he decreed before Isaac's birth that Isaac, the younger brother, would be heir and covenant head over Ishmael, the firstborn. In addition to God's decree, Esau voluntarily sold his birthright blessing to Jacob. Again, that was a common and accepted practice in that day. The fact that Esau did for something so different in value, he did it in exchange for a meager meal of lentil soup, it was not because he was tricked or deceived or pressured under duress. It tells us it was because he despised his birthright. It tells us that in Genesis 25:34, it tells us that in the New Testament, Hebrews 12:16. In other words, he regarded his birthright blessing as worthless. Finally, Isaac confirmed the blessing to Jacob after Jacob's fraud was discovered, after it was discovered that it was Jacob pretending to be Esau, which was Rebekah's plan. 
You see, why, the reason why that's so important is because Isaac could have annulled the blessing on the grounds of fraud. That has always been grounds for setting aside a covenant or a contract. You could consider the Old Testament law of marriage. If, if a bride, uh, for example, was presented and represented by herself and her family as being a virgin, and then after the marriage, and marriage is a covenant, afterwards it was discovered that she was not, that was fraud, and it was grounds for annulling the marriage. Isaac could have annulled the blessing on the grounds of fraud. He did not. He confirmed it to Jacob. Genesis 27:37. And Hebrews 11:20 tells us that he did that by faith. Now you see when he first gave the blessing to Jacob thinking he was Esau, that was not by faith because at that point Isaac was basically acting in direct defiance of God's word. But when he became aware of the fraud and had the opportunity to annul the blessing to Jacob and give it to Esau, he did not. He maintained it to Jacob. That was by faith. So what Jacob is giving Esau in our text is a gracious gift intended to do three things. Number one, to turn away the old Esau's murderous and unjust wrath. Number two, to acknowledge Esau as the Lord of Edom. That was the country to the immediate south of them at this point. It was called Edom because that was Esau's nickname. And so the whole region now is called after Esau. It's also the region of Mount Seir and its surrounding hill country. And you see now Jacob is approaching that country. He's right on the cusp of it. And he wants to make it clear that he's not coming there to interfere with Esau's claim to that land. And so he's sending forth these presents. Indeed, God will later on command Israel not to take even a foot of Edom because he had given it to Esau and his descendants. Deuteronomy 2 verse 5. And number three, Jacob simply wanted to show his desire to live at peace with his brother Esau. This is why Jacob connects his gift, he links his gift, not to anything taken from Esau, but to grace that Jacob had received from God in blessing him with all the possessions he had, and also in appearing to him face to face while preserving Jacob's life, verses 8 through 11. Remember, the last thing that happened is that this man shows up, this stranger shows up who wrestles with Jacob all night long, who turns out to be God himself in the form of a man who is wrestling with Jacob, making the point to Jacob that I'm the one who has been wrestling with you your whole life. And it's all been for your good, even though others may have intended it for evil. That's why Jacob is talking about seeing God's face. He saw God face to face, and yet God did not consume him. He preserved his life. Now, as part of all this grace that Jacob has received from God, and part of his thanks to God, he wants to give this gift to Esau, verses 10 and 11. And so we see here a change in Jacob 
as well. We see a new thankfulness toward God, an awareness of God's blessing on his life. We also see a new graciousness toward his brother Esau. And the new Esau, when he hears what is behind Jacob's gift, he receives it. Verse 11. Then Esau offers to escort Jacob on his journey. That's very neighborly. That's very gracious. You see that in verses 12 and 15. But Jacob declines, citing the need for him to move along at a very slow pace due to the needs of the grazing animals and of the children. And while the thought is very much appreciated, there really isn't any need because Jacob, after all, has already traveled all the way down from Haran. So Esau returns with his men to Seir, meaning the region of Mount Seir, known as the country of Edom. Jacob then journeys to Succoth, which was west of where Jacob and Esau met. They met at Peniel. So he travels a little bit west, but he's still on the east side of the Jordan River. And there Jacob allows the animals to rest and graze for a time, verse 17. And he builds shelters for the animals. The Hebrew word for shelter is Sukkot, which is where we get the name Sukkoth. Jacob also built a house, although the Hebrew word doesn't necessarily mean a house in the way that we would think of it. Because it could be a temporary structure. In some cases, it could even be a tent. And then finally, Jacob came safely to Canaan, specifically to the area of Shechem, which is west of Succoth and across the Jordan River. Verse 18. And there Jacob purchased land from one of the prominent families. In fact, one of the sons of that family is named Shechem. Verse 19. And Jacob built there an altar By implication, it's indicating that he worshipped the Lord there on the altar he had built. And he called this altar El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So as people come and they see this altar, they're going to ask, what is the meaning of this altar? And they're going to be told, well, this altar is El Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel. And it creates an opportunity to witness to the one true and living God. So in short, God has now fulfilled his promises to be with Jacob, to bless him, and to bring him back to the land of Canaan. Promises that were made 20 years ago. And it might have seemed like that they never would be fulfilled, but now here they are. They are fulfilled. And Jacob, in response, builds this altar and worships the Lord. Well, as we come down the home stretch this morning, consider the meaning of this passage and how it ties in with the rest of Scripture, I, don't, I want to return to the changes that we see in Esau. Because these are not normal changes that you see people make on a normal basis. You adults know how hard it is to change. Especially the older we get, we become adults. It's very hard to change, even in small ways. But these are radical changes that we see with Esau. These are deep changes. Changes that are consistent with faith and repentance. And in considering this, I want us to note the parallels between Esau and Ishmael, who is Esau's uncle, Isaac's 
older brother. With both of them, with neither of them, I could say, does the Bible tell us straight out that they came to faith and repentance? That is, that they came to a proper and saving relationship with the living God. However, with both of them, Ishmael and Esau, we see very hopeful signs later in life. With Ishmael, we know that he was driven away because he scoffed at Isaac. He scoffed at the idea that Isaac, the younger, would be the heir and head of the covenant. And so he was driven away. And yet we see that that did not foreclose the grace of God to him or the opportunity for faith and repentance because God immediately appears to him in the desert. And then years later, when Abraham dies and it's time to bury him, we see Ishmael standing shoulder to shoulder with Isaac to bury their father. That's a very, very hopeful sign. With Esau, again, we've already talked about the hopeful signs that we see here, the radical change in him. And even as we see these hopeful signs with both of them late in life, we saw the same kind of issues, the same kind of problems with them early in life. Both Ishmael and Esau were firstborns who stumbled over God's choice of a younger brother to be the heir and head of the covenant. But we need to realize that this is a pattern that we see with God in the Old Testament. We see him constantly choosing the younger of the older. We saw it with Isaac over Ishmael. We see it with Jacob over um, Esau. We're going to see it with Joseph over all of his older brothers. We're going to see it with David over all of his older brothers. And it's not because God is playing favorites. It's not because God has something against firstborns. It's because God was raising up Christ types. He was raising up individual sons who in the sovereignty of God had some aspect of their life that was a living picture of some aspect of Christ who was to come. And through these Christ types, God is preaching the gospel to his people who were living centuries before Christ. You have to remember, we're talking about Jacob and Esau. We're talking about people who lived 1,700, 1,800 years before Christ. And so God is not just preaching the gospel in concept. He is giving his people living, tangible things they can see and experience that are communicating aspects of the gospel to them. And one of the central aspects of the gospel that God keeps communicating over and over and over by picking these younger sons over the firstborns is this. There is only one person in all of human history who inherits the promises of God. That is, who inherits it in his own right. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who inherits the promises of God in his own right because he is the only one who lived the life that we were created to live. 
while also laying down his life to conquer Satan's sin and death and free us and the creation from their death grip. Jesus is the only one who inherits God's promises in his own right. Their only way for anybody else to inherit is in union with Christ, which is by faith. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. God does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. He is the one who inherits the promises of God. How do we inherit? Verse 26 You are all sons, that is, you become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And what this means is that all other than Jesus, all the rest of us, must give up hope in anything we think is ours by right. Because the only thing that is ours by right, the only thing we inherit by right, is the wages of sin, which is death. The only way to inherit anything else is by being united with Christ by faith. Now those in the Old Testament who by the grace of God perceived this by faith, they got this. They understood. You will always see them looking away from whatever was supposedly theirs by right. You will see them rallying around the Christ type, looking through the Christ type as a lens to see Christ from afar. Hebrews 11.13, speaking of Old Testament saints such as Abraham and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. That's for those who had that kind of faith. If you want a perfect example of what this looks like, think of King Saul's son, Jonathan. Now by this point in the story of King Saul, he's a usurper. He had been anointed by God, but then rejected by God because he was disobedient. He was not faithful. God had instead anointed David, another younger son, to be king. But now Saul is holding on to the throne as a usurper. He's a tyrant, and he wants to kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, is bound up with David. And Saul thinks his son is crazy. He keeps getting on to his son Jonathan. He said, don't you understand that you will inherit the throne from me? And you're binding yourself up in your future with David? Are you crazy? Are you insane? No, Jonathan was not insane. He was just a man of faith. He understood the truth. He understood the gospel by faith. He gave up what was arguably his by right to have what would be his through the one David represented. 
who is Jesus Christ. It's the same issue with everybody we see in the Old Testament. It's the same issue in every generation. It's the same issue today. Only Christ is the ultimate promised one. Only Christ is the ultimate heir and head of the covenant. All the rest of us are Ishmael. All the rest of us are Esau. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians 3, verse 4. He said, if anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh with what they stand to inherit in their own right, he said, if that's the way you think, I more so if we're going to think that way because I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But then Paul says in verse 7, what things were gained to me Whatever I thought that I would inherit in my own right by simply being circumcised, by simply existing in the covenant, I have counted it loss as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. There's a man who got it. What is Paul saying in so many words in that passage? He is saying, I am Esau. I am Ishmael. But I can inherit through Christ Jesus by faith. You see, the whole point of the covenant, the covenant that we have today, is to create a household the household of God, in which faith in Christ is cultivated. That's the whole point. And a life of love to God and one another is produced. And the children God gives us are raised. That is a a great blessing. That's an objective blessing. But if we start trusting in the covenant itself as though just existing in it enables us to inherit God's promises, we have just turned the covenant into an idol. And we have turned it into a curse instead of a blessing. This was the crucial error of the Jewish leadership of the first century. They wanted to define God's household and God's people simply by being in the covenant and defending its borders against Gentiles rather than defining God's household and his people by Christ, the cornerstone, and faith in him. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says... Beware of the mutilation. That doesn't really come through in the English what Paul is saying. He's taking the the Greek word for circumcision and he's combining it with the Greek word for amputation. So the closest we can come to it in English is by saying beware of the amputation. Beware of the circumcision that cuts off and destroys. That's what he's saying. Beware of the amputation. That's what he's calling those who believe in circumcision as a means of salvation and inheriting the promises in and of itself. He said, now it's a killer. 
Beware of the ampucision. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. The Jewish leadership stumbled over the fact that God was reforming Israel around Christ rather than reforming Christ around Israel. The apostles respond throughout the New Testament by taking the Jews back through the Old Testament, back through Genesis and all the way up to show that God had always reformed his people around every single one of the Christ types. Those who rejected the Christ types were cut out of the covenant over time. Those who rejected Moses, those who rejected Joseph, those who rejected David over time, they are cut out of God's household because it's all defined by the cornerstone who is Christ. And that's who these Christ types were picturing. And, and yet, none of these Christ types was the actual Christ. So it's not like they could get puffed up with pride either, thinking, well, I'm the Christ type. Everybody's rallying around me. So I'm the only one I inherit of my own right. God made it very clear to them that they did not inherit in their own right because he required every single one of them in their lifetimes to pass the baton of the Christ type to the next Christ type of the next generation. So now, if they did not look through that lens to Christ, if they did not rally around the Christ type, they too would be excluded. Jacob is going to have to pass that baton to Joseph. The time is going to come that if they do not rally around Joseph, they're all going to starve because there's a famine in the land. Even Jacob must do that. When God raises up Moses, you see the same thing. Then it's Joshua. You see the same thing. Then it's Samuel. Then it's David. And on down the line. So the apostles keep taking them through the Old Testament saying, you need to read your own history again. And pay attention this time. Because God was always reforming his people around every single one of the Christ types in order to show that one day God was going to finally and forever reform his people around the Christ to whom the Christ types pointed. That is the story of Isaac and Ishmael. That is the story of Jacob and Esau. That is the story of Christ and the human race. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.